last year, we looked at 1 Samuel and the story ended with a cliffhanger, right? There was a big battle in the end and Saul and Jonathan died in that battle. Israel suffered a great defeat against the Philistines. Many of their soldiers were killed. It looked as if the people of Israel were in great trouble from this point onwards. So as we move on from our series in the book of Galatians, and today we start our new series, 2 Samuel, we want to take note that our story for today will pick up the action right where 1 Samuel ended. So before we go there, it may be good for us to think about 2 Samuel as a whole, right? Now, this book is a direct sequel to 1 Samuel. In fact, it's actually one huge book divided into two scrolls because of the limitation of just how much you can squeeze into one scroll, right? So because of that, we want to see that it has the same author's intent and that is something worth figuring out before we continue. After all, it's always good, right, to figure out what the author is writing this book for and what he wants us to know. So let's think about it a little, right? If First Samuel was a movie and you just watched the premiere screening, right? You come out from the movie, your friend catches, hey, what's the movie about? How would you answer? Now, it'd be very tempting to say, oh, it's about Samuel, right? He's the title character, but actually Samuel dies like not even halfway, you know, even before that he dies very early. So it's not really about him, right? But what we see throughout 1 Samuel is actually this big question. Who will rule over Israelite? Right? What is this system going to be like? So Samuel's story then is put in to kind of help us see God's hand in action as he works out his plans and also to set up an introduction of a young shepherd boy who will be anointed secretly as God's king and Saul is then the, backgr- the backdrop, right? So the point is to show that there's this king that God is working on. There's this king that the Israelites have chosen. So despite 1 Samuel coming to like a sad ending, it's actually just part of that narrative, right? To bring the answer to the hope of the Israelites. And the answer, of course, is going to be the rising up of the true king who's going to save their people, which is David. So the book of Samuel, first and second, is concerned about showing God's people about the kingship that God is going to establish and how God is going to use his king for that purpose. Right? It's for the people to get confidence. And this is the author's immediate purpose, right? But we also know God is using the human author's narrative to give a hint to the readers of his bigger plan, right? So God is planning to work in the future through his king who he chooses for a greater plan than just the restoration of Israel. So we can't miss out, right? What are the things that we learn about the king and the kingship in First and Second Samuel and point it forward to Christ, right? So this is not one of those, you know, some people call it Jesus jump, right? Like Sundays go, everything, I said, okay, I see Jesus here. In this case, that's the intent. So as we come to 2 Samuel, the curtain comes up and the scene opens with this verse, right? Verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So 
while it's just a simple description, the verse actually helps us to link in that the author wants us to remember what has happened. And the point here is that 1 Samuel actually had two endings, right? The, the last chapter, we see Israel defeated and Saul killed. But actually, the second last chapter is also another ending, right? And that was of David and his valiant rescue of his people from the Amalekites. And this had been the style of 1 Samuel, right? The narrator kept on switching between the two scenes. What's happening with David? What's happening with Saul? Back and forth. So that we see how their destinies play out in parallel, right? So the author has written it in such a way so that there's tension, there's comparison between David and Saul. That's his style of writing. So in the conclusion of 1 Samuel, we find out that Saul had an ignominious defeat and David showed us that he is a man who does what is right by trusting in God. And so in 2 Samuel now, where we come, Saul's story has ended. And now the author is putting the focus back on David. And he wants to show us the trajectory of David's growth and ascension as the true God-chosen king of Israel. So as we see David in Ziklag here, we see that Okay, when Saul was fighting and dying, David was in another place, but he's not just being lazing around, right? He was actually dealing with the salvation of his people in his own way. So it shows the reader, right, that David had his own thing to do. He was saving his people. And so this is meant to put David in a good light. The author wants people to see, actually, David's a good guy, even though he wasn't with Saul. And so we also see that David, who was secretly anointed king, chosen by God, was in Ziklag, which is enemy territory, instead of sitting at the throne where you would expect him to be. Right now, it's a long story, but if you go back to 1 Samuel, you remember, and you try to trace back, actually, how did David end up in Ziklag, a Philistine territory, right? We will see that actually David had his downs. He messed up. He didn't trust God. He tried to take matters into his own hand and he ended up working for the Philistine and living in Philistine territory. So David is in a bad place. David's not perfect. He's not completely faithful. right? But there's good in David as well because we see fortunately he used that position to further the cause of the Israelites. He became a double agent living a dangerous double life. At any time once they find out, he habis. So we can't escape that David not perfect and the author is upfront with that. So he's not trying to just spin things to make David good, but he's trying to present David as God's chosen in the best light possible as we compare him to Saul, right? Who is the king that men have chosen. So that as we judge, we can kind of say, okay, like David not perfect, but actually a lot of good here. So that's why this new narrative shows us David is found in Ziklag instead of in Jerusalem. The expectation then is for the readers to see, okay, uh, the hero starting in the bad place, lah, right? Normally, if you want to show a hero in a movie, like start off in a slum or uh, you know, some farm somewhere, right? So that's where he start. But the readers would be expecting them to see, how's David's life going to turn out? Especially now that Saul is dead. What kind of leader, what kind of king is he going to be? So the author is putting us in the story by just saying the simple thing. He started off at Ziklag. And of course, he's in Ziklag 
there will be questions of his loyalty. Because from the perspective of the average Israelite, hey, you say David's a hero, but he's working with the enemy, right? He set up his kingdom in Ziklag. He was even invited by the Philistines to fight Saul's army. So you take all these doubts in, then the author deals with this issue and declares, in a sense, David actually a good guy, no part in bringing Saul down. And while he was in Ziklag, he was saving his people, dealing with the Amalekites, and these are good things. Right? And this helps to explain lah, to the people, right? Why David didn't come and help Saul? Lah. So it also points out very subtly, right? Saul failed to deal with the Amalekite. But actually, David is shown lah, right? taking care of business. He is the leader who does what is right. So the people will see, right? David's not a traitor, his hands are clean, that Actually, he was a double agent, not a Philistine sympathizer, not a traitor to Israel. And the author does this very subtly. Just one verse reminds you back of that first Samuel. So, the readers now, even as you see this, as you consider David, you'll see David was flawed and not perfect, but David was repentant and he sought to deal rightly with God, unlike Saul. That's the whole point of the comparison of first Samuel, right? And so God granted David a comeback at the end of 1 Samuel. I said there was two endings, right? So David's ending is like, good luck, and Saul's ending is bad. But the remaining question now, if you are a regular Israelite hearing this story, will God bring David up from Ziklag? Will he give him the throne that now Saul has evacuated? And so as we go through 2 Samuel, know that we will see the author trying to show us David rising up, his redemption story arc, how he takes his throne and brings salvation to people. So this passage that we're looking at today is the beginning of that story. How that king rose into his glory. So with that, everything that's necessary is set up. The movie now plays. Action. Verse 2. On the third day, a man appears in David's court. And this man came from Saul's camp. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. Now, he claims to have come from a battlefield and that could just be that, right? That's why he's all uh, torn clothes and dirt on his head. But that also does make it sound like he was mourning, right? It's two possibilities. Is he just been through a tough time or did he like tear off his clothes and put dirt? How do we know what's being implied? Well, actually, if you see word for word, the exact description is found in 1 Samuel of this man who brought Eli bad news that his sons have been killed and the ark was taken. So knowing that it's the same author, he uses exact same words, it shows you the author's implying this guy actually like showing his great mourning and sorrow that he has seen something terrible. Then we see so the man saw David, he immediately bowed down to him and paid homage to David. And this is interesting, right? Because this man is treating David like he is a king. Now, we know David's the anointed one, right? We cheating lah. We already know the history, right? But that's not what the people know because David was anointed in secret. To the general populace of uh, Israel, yeah, David's a hero. He's loved by the people. But for the large part of the time they know David, he is a rebel who's running from the government. Right? We don't know how Saul spun it, lah, right? But there will surely be controversy because we also know David became cozy with the Philistines, 
who were the enemies of the Israelites. The fact that David has set up in Ziklag, enemy territory, also not so good for his reputation, right? In fact, you have to wonder, how did this guy know that David was in Ziklag? Now, David's supporters are all with him in Ziklag, and it would be odd for Saul's supporter to come to Ziklag to find David, and even more to bow down to him. In fact, Saul still has an heir, Ishbosheth, who is one of Saul's sons. In fact, David's kingship actually has to contend with the kingship of Ishboset, and we're going to see this further down in 2 Samuel. So, if we take all these questions in, and we think about it, we want to wonder, why is this guy bowing down to David? What's happening? And the narrator tells it to us in such a way that maybe we start questioning his motive. Does he know of David and respect him so much that he's coming to David this way, or does he have his own agenda? So we follow the story to find out. And we see in verse 3, David asks him, where has he come from? And the sad story comes out. The man claims to have escaped from the camp of Israel, the camp that was taken over by the Philistine and destroyed. So he is a refugee from the battleground. Then he continues on verse 4 to give this report. The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now this is terrible news. And David finds out what has happened to Saul. So David wanted confirmation. And I'm sure David must be wondering, right, can this man be trusted? Uh? And he could easily be a messenger sent by the Philistine who wanted to test David's loyalty, right? So in verse 5, he asks him for more details. And we see in verse 6, the man telling his story. By chance, he happened to be on Mount Gilboa which seems to imply he's not really a soldier fighting Saul's men, right? Soldiers won't be wandering around by chance in a battlefield to run into Saul. They would have been either sent by their commanders to fight at a particular place, or they would be back in base camp. However, earlier on, he did say he's with Saul's camp, which implies he's in Saul's army, but here he seems to be wandering around the battleground randomly to, hey, Saul, good to see you. Right? doesn't quite make sense, right? So what's his position in Saul's camp? Was he a soldier or was he just a random walking passerby? Now, these discrepancies can be easily explained away, especially if you're creative, right? But you want to see the author is doing it in such a way that we're starting to have doubts about this man's story. Something's not right. It's a little bit inconsistency here and there. He then claims Saul was leaning on his spear, but was surrounded by enemy chariots and horsemen. So in verse 7, Saul calls out to him. And the man introduces himself as an Amalekite. Now this should make the readers alert, right? Alarm bells should be going on. Saul had been tasked by God to kill all Amalekites. And suddenly this man here comes up. Surely that raises some questions, right? Now, on the surface it reminds us Saul didn't do a good job, which is what led him to lose God's favor. Because the way he dealt with the Amalekites when God told him to kill all of them was not right. And suddenly in this part of the story, an Amalekite pops up. Author's definitely trying to hint at something. Right? So at this point, we don't know yet, right? Okay, okay, keep this in mind. We continue on and we go on to verse 9. Saul commands the man, stand beside me and kill me because Saul is in anguish. Now he probably is thinking of the horrors of capture. Torture, mutilation, humiliation. 
before the Philistines actually get around to finishing him off, right? So that's why he wanted this Amalekite to kill him. So in verse 10, Amalekite tells David he killed Saul because he was sure Saul could not live after he had fallen, right? And this may imply Saul must have been heavily injured, standing because he was leaning on the spear. Kind of very sad picture. Lah. So it's implying that what he's doing here is a mercy killing. I help you. Lah. This is the best I can do. So having killed Saul, the man then said, he took the symbols of Saul's office, his crown and his armlet, and he brought them to David, who, which is being implied here by him bowing down and bringing this, he considers to be the next person after Saul to whom kingship is meant to be passed down. So that's why he bows down. And so this is a very powerful and touching story, right, of the end of Saul and how David receives his crown, except for one problem. It's all a bunch of lies. We know the true account of the death of Saul from the narrator's explanation in 1 Samuel. So we know this man is actually just nicely cooking up a story for David. Right? The Amalekite was lying. He was never there to kill Saul because Saul's armor bearer saw Saul take his own life. He fell on his sword without any mention of random Amalekite visitors running around the battlefield, right? There's no mention of Saul leaning on his spear. The narrator only mentions Saul having a sword. Now, Saul and his spear is actually an iconic pairing, right? So if someone is making up tales, they will assume, lah, surely Saul must be holding a spear. Lah. That's what he's most popular for, right? The spear and his tamarind tree. So in fact, in 1 Samuel, the reason that Saul wanted his armor bearer to strike him down is because he did not want to die at the hands of the uncircumcised. And here this guy is claiming Saul asked an uncircumcised Amalekite to kill him. Right, so already you see, Ayo, this story is at odds lah, with what the narrator told us about Saul's demise in 1 Samuel. So we start to realize here, right, that the narrator is subtly revealing to us, actually the Amalekite is lying. And this then helps us to see his motivation in coming to David. He has taken Saul, Saul's crown and armband, symbol of his kingship. He brings it to David, while Saul actually still has living relatives. And a side note, right? It's ironic. Saul did not deal with the Amalekites when God told him to destroy them. Now the Amalekite deals with Saul as he robs his corpse. So since the Amalekite would have known Saul hated David, now that Saul is dead, and David would have the most support from the people, right? People had sung great songs about David. David was considered a heroic figure. He comes before David and he bows down to him. So the Amalekites see this David is the best bet to become king. And his purpose here, coming, bowing down, bringing the crown and armband, is to carry favor. He knows Saul has a son, Yet he comes here in an attempt to become a kingmaker. And doing so, he's hoping for a big reward from David. Because you would be more appreciated in coming and making someone else a king than just giving these things to the next king. Right? Now, this man is most likely a looter who hangs around battlefield and steals from the dead. 
not a, nobly not a noble profession and universally frowned upon. So having scored the big one from the body of Saul, what crown and armband, right? This man must have figured out what's the most value I can get from these items, right? Not selling it off, I can use it for greater gains. Now this is like Eula, right? Imagine you find an expensive ostrich leather bag that was reported to be lost in the newspaper. Now, if you want, you can actually sell it lah, secondhand, you know, go to muda.com, sell it, make some money. But if you're smart and you know, wow, this ostrich leather bag belongs to a political VIP, then the smart thing is you go to them, you exaggerate, I have to fight off seven men, you know, to get and rescue this bag. Just because I want to return it to you. You will flatter them, try to become good friends. Then you will hope, not only for a reward, but also for connections, for contracts that is going to allow you to manage money. And eventually, with all that you got, you will buy your own yacht, become a huge multi-million dollar country hopping tycoon, and have your wild parties. Right? So this is the motivation for the Amalekite. He's hoping to set up himself. He wants to be connected to David and to be rewarded. And he can set himself as kingmaker to help David rise. Because if David is going to rise, by attaching himself to David, he is going to rise also. And it would not have been very uncommon for someone to have done such a great service, right? Because he's giving legitimacy to David's claim to the throne by delivering the symbols of office. So it won't be unthinkable for someone like this to be rewarded with a high position in government, right? Minister or something lah. Especially when this person comes, bow down, very loyal, Right? Even telling the lie that he killed Saul was actually crafted with purpose to make David feel indebted to him. After all, he will be thinking, right? David must be overjoyed. Saul finally killed. And actually, you know, he won't say it, but surely he wants to reward lah, the one that sped Saul on his way. So we wouldn't be wrong also if you think, oh, this would be good news for David, right? After all, Saul was the guy who made David spend a significant amount of his youth, vigor, running, hiding, suffering, right? Saul wanted to murder David when all David has done was show loyalty to Saul. Even the way he mentioned, right, that he escaped from the camp of Saul implies that he has escaped from Saul to find David. That's where his sympathy lies. Oh, very smart guy one, smart opportunist. Right? He would expect David to be overjoyed now that he has a strong claim to the throne and his enemy Saul is killed. Yet we come to verse 11 and see how David responds. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now this is shocking, because here David shows us he has no bitterness towards Saul. If anyone had a reason to mock and jeer the death of Saul, it would be David. But here we see that David is righteous in his respect for Saul as the king of Israel. David, for all his faults, was faultless in how he treated Saul. He was loyal and obedient in all things, except when he had to go on the run, but that's so that he can prevent his own death. 
So with that then, we come to the final scene of the story, right? After prioritizing rightly the mourning of the death of the king, David comes back to business. He questions the Amalekite to ask him where he comes from in verse 13. And he gets a strange answer, right? Instead of telling where I come from, you know, I come from Saramban, the Ipo guy, right? He tells him that he identifies as an Amalekite, that he is a son of a sojourner. Now, being a son of a sojourner here is, would imply that actually he's one of those people who live in Israel, follow the people around, they know the Israelite culture, just haven't converted yet. Right? So therefore, they are subject to Israel's culture and laws. So having heard this, David asked him a question, which I'm sure would have shocked the Amalekite. So he asked in verse 14, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This would not have been what the Amalekite would have expected. Wow, what would I have given to see his face, man? Here he is, having killed the one who has persecuted David. Instead of praise and reward, David asks him this. Right? And this actually shouldn't shock us, right? Because in 1 Samuel, we know David had opportunities to destroy Saul, but he treated him with respect because he's the king that God has put on the throne. David himself said, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. May I never lift my hand against him, seeing he's the anointed of the Lord. So we see that David shows us here that rather than a blind obedience to Saul, what he was really concerned about was obeying the Lord and fears the Lord. Which, ironically, is something highly in contrast with Saul's own attitude with God. So in this man trying to cheat David by saying that he killed Saul with his own hands, Amalekite has made a serious miscalculation. Instead of rewarding him with what the Amalekite would have wanted, David rewards him with what his claimed deeds deserve. David ordered one of his men to kill the Amalekite. For the reason, he has not respected the office of God's chosen king. To raise up his hand against the king is to go against God. Only God had the right to determine Saul's destiny. And so the Amalekite received Israelite justice with this pronouncement in verse 16. Your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So with this, the Amalekite dies, and the story is set up for the next story arc, which you're going to see next week. But what do we learn from here? Firstly, we definitely see how David is portrayed as a righteous ruler. He responds in a godly manner when news of Saul's death is heard. He had every reason to be bitter with Saul, but he does not. Because he see Saul was put in place by God. So, in that sense, his theology is shown in his practice. He's indirectly saying, you have put him there, Lord, so I seek to submit to the best of my ability. And if he's not a good king, then your hand, only your hand must remove him. Right? And this theology then explains why he's mourning Saul's laws, why he seeks justice and judges the Amalekite and so on. Right? David rightly respects the office, even if the man himself was far from admirable because it was God's appointment. So David is thus shown to us to be a man who does what is right and a king who fears God. Well, he's not perfect, and as the story goes on, we see how he's going to fail in 2 Samuel, right? We can still say that David is shown here as an 
exemplary example in contrast to Saul. And that's going to give us the answer to the question that everyone must have had at the end of 1 Samuel. Ayo, Saul died already. Who shall be king over us? So we see in David a typology that points forward to the greater David, who is Christ Jesus himself, a righteous king who does what is right because he fears God and he obeys God. Secondly, we see that lying to God's representative is dangerous. We saw Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostle, to the Holy Spirit, and fell dead. Malachi lied to David and also died. Now, interestingly, if he had been truthful, right, you come to David, admit, I didn't kill Saul, I just robbed this, but I figured I'd give it to you, he probably wouldn't have died. It was his greed that led him to death. Right? He wanted to get more. So be careful of what your greed leads you to do. See that it doesn't lead you into trouble. If the Amalekite had told the truth, he would have lived. He would have got a smaller reward, but chances are he would have lived. And it was only because he wanted to appear great before David that he lied and paid for it with his, price, uh, with his life. So think of it, right? If lying to David out of ungodly desire, led to such dire repercussion, what more for those of us who think that we can lie to God's ultimate king, Jesus Christ, because we think we can reap rewards from him. Jesus warned, right? Many will come to him and say, they have done great works. But Jesus knows the heart of man, and he will reject them, saying, depart from me, I never knew you. So make sure you're not lying to yourself about your commitment to follow Christ. We all do that, right? We say we're Christian, we come on Sunday, and then Monday to Saturday, very different character. That's lying to Christ, isn't it? So come before him then as a repentant sinner, not as a person convinced of your self-righteousness. Don't try to puff yourself up in front of God thinking you're something, right? Next. When we see how David dealt with Saul and thinks about the implication of that, I wonder if we need to see how we should deal with our leaders, even leaders who wrong us. Right? David saw that it was God who puts people in positions of power. So he sought to submit even when Saul wronged David so terribly. This was why David did not try to kill Saul when he had the opportunity. So for us, actually that would mean we also need to try to submit to our leaders. Lah, because God is the one who has put them there. We should not try to take matters into our own hands and seek to get rid of them. Rather, we are to trust in God and do what is right as David did. Now, of course... There are exceptions to this, right? There are special cases where we need to save lives. Um, there are things where you are allowed to make a decision. You're allowed to vote and things like that. This is not talking about that. This is not blind loyalty. But in general, the principle is that we have to act with the fear of the Lord and seeking His will rather than just what is convenient for us. So it's worth seeing that whatever frustration we have with leaders whom God has put in place, we should remember to rely on God and not try to take matters purely into our own hands in a manner that dishonors God 
or shows that our theology is actually, yeah, yeah, God didn't put him there. Lah. He's just a nobody. I can deal with him. Right? And finally, and I say this not as an Old Testament foreshadowing of the New Testament, uh, but more of a similarity in theme, right? So don't come and shoot me for this. But see that Saul did not take God's command to destroy the Amalekites seriously. Right? And this was also a problem with Israel, right? Uh, they did not seek the destruction of those God has said must be removed from the promised land. And these people were supposed to be removed because of this warning. They will corrupt God's people. They will lead them away from God. Right? They will intermarry and worship other gods and ultimately end up causing destruction and evil to the Israelites. Right? And it may seem cruel right, to deal harshly with them. We must see, however, if God commands total destruction, then that is true wisdom. Right? The Israelites did not obey and they paid for it. So it is with the thing that God has told us Christians today to remove from our lives, to run away from, to fight with all our beings, to not compromise even an inch. And you know what that is? Our flesh, sin. God has commanded to do away with sin. And unless we listen, unless we fight and destroy sin, we would be inviting our own peril on our head. Saul did not deal with the Amalekite, and the Malachite dealt with Saul at the end. If we do not deal with sin and purge it from our mess, sin will deal with us at the end. Fight sin, purge it from your life. Because if you don't deal with sin, now sin won't take away your earthly treasure. In fact, sin will give you earthly treasure, right? But when you're dead, sin will take away your heavenly treasure, the crown of glory that should have been yours, if only you did not compromise with sin. So trust that when God commands you to do something, He commands it for good, and there should be no compromise. Fight sin. Bring it before God. Seek His mercy and forgiveness, and not nurture and deal with it. Right? And here's the good news, right? We know that Christ has come, we know that he is the king that leads his people to safety. So we don't need to have victory over sin. Rather, we come to Christ and through him continue fighting. And that's the whole point of Saul and Amalekites, right? It was actually the problem with the heart, not of military might, not of strength. So we don't need to be strong and destroy everything in our life. You can't do it. But trust in God and keep on persevering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for, your time, for this time together. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to see in our passage how we can trust in Christ, that he is the righteous ruler who does all things right, and so help us to submit to him and trusting in him, fight all the things that you have told us to fight and learn from him, Father, in the way that we deal with our leaders, in the way that we learn to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.